University of Cambridge, this is Election, the politics podcast. My name is David Runciman and we've been coming to you each week here from my office in the Cambridge Politics Department to talk about what really matters in this campaign. And we'll keep going until Britain has a new government, however long that takes. This week I'll be talking to the neuroscientist Barbara Sahakian about how the brain works and why that matters for politics. Politicians who don't understand brain science are not just going to make misguided policies, they're also going to struggle to get their message heard. Barbara tells us why it's so hard to grab people's attention during an election campaign. You have to be surprised because this triggers off uh, the dopamine in the brain. You need a prediction error. You need to be surprised by what you hear. Unfortunately, the voters are probably not getting enough surprises about something new, exciting and positive. And how left-right in politics maps onto left-right in the human brain. If you're more conservative, you tend to look at risk and uncertainty as a threat and therefore your right amygdala lights up. Stay tuned to hear about that and a great deal more. Before we talk about this week's news, a quick return to last week's theme of mistrust in politics and the problem of getting outside the Westminster bubble. Our intrepid reporter Lizzie Presser has spent the past few weeks working at the Cabinet Office, so we thought we'd ask her to canvas some views from people who are inside the bubble looking out. What's the view like from there? Do the insiders recognise that there's a real problem? I think it's very easy if you have gone to a certain university and you joined the civil service to work in a bubble of sorts, which is essentially like a middle-class London bubble. I, I genuinely do think it's a problem. There's a bubble of people that work in Westminster and you uh, make friends through the course of your work and socially as well. Uh, inevitably, there is a bubble, um, but it's a little bit like saying um, you work at Tesco do you work in the Tesco bubble? I think where I see a Westminster bubble more than anywhere is in politics rather than policy. So I think politicians are sometimes very unaware of the implications of their actions, quite often think they're untouchable when actually they're under the scrutiny. And I think that's where you see the Westminster bubble more than ever. Yes, I think we try and represent something outside of Westminster but if you look at the people who work in Westminster uh, they're all largely very Westminster type people, that's all they've ever done and that's all they probably will do and it's a big problem for us that we don't really represent the people we try and work for I'm very lucky to have a job which really pushes external contact and lets you go and explore other people and make sure that you get external thinking in. Um, But that, I recognise, is pretty unique in the civil service. And judging from Thursday nights in pubs in Whitehall, which may be where we are right now... um, It is really a bubble, and everyone knows each other. Everyone has worked together or slept together or, you know, has drunk together at some point. So there you have it. The Westminster bubble is bad. The Whitehall bubble might be even worse, though it also sounds like they're keeping busy. Now to the news of the past week. Over the last couple of days, the parties have been publishing their manifestos, not before time, you might think, given how long they've been campaigning and how many of their promises and pledges have already been made. The Lib Dems and UKIP get their turn this morning after we've recorded this discussion. So we're going to focus on the manifestos of the two main parties. In keeping with the two halves of the human brain we'll be talking about shortly, we'll divide our discussion in two. 
Labour first, Tories later. I'm joined by two members of our regular news panel, Finbar Livesey, who's an expert in public policy, and Chris Brooke, an expert in political theory. Chris, if I could come to you first on the Labour manifesto. I'm sure you've read a few of these in your time. Does this one strike you as different in significant ways? I think there are quite a lot of continuities across Labour Party manifestos, and I think that's in part because the Labour Party has a complicated policy-making machinery that takes years to do its work. And so if you read a Labour manifesto, you can see what some of the policy disputes have been in the party. You can get a sense of who's been lobbying them. When you look in particular at the policies that don't make the headlines that aren't going to be the stuff of real controversy in the election campaign. And there I do get a sense of continuity across Labour manifestos. It's the same kind of document, which very few people will read with care, although some of the people involved in the specialist lobbies will turn keenly to the relevant page to see how much of their agenda has made it in to the final document. But I think it is uh, in some ways different from other Labour manifestos. I thought it was a very defensive document, the very strong emphasis on the budget responsibility lock at the start of the manifesto. On the very first page. On the very Amazingly, before even we get Ed Miliband's foreword, we get the lock. That's right. And And just to explain to people what the lock is. Well, it's a pledge that uh, every budget that the Labour government presents in the next parliament will be reducing the deficit. I mean, it has a sort of ludicrous aspect to it, which is that if there's another economic crash in order to balance the budget, Labour will have to cut public spending as the economy tanks, which is a recipe for disaster. I'm sure if it comes to that, they'll abandon the budget responsibility lock. It's a capitulation to the austerity narrative that the Conservatives have been uh, presenting. I don't think there's any way around that. And Finbar, it empowers the Office of Budget Responsibility to oversee whether Labour is abiding by its lock. And actually, if you go a bit further in the document, it has a striking passage where it says that a Labour government will legislate to bind all future party manifestos, not just Labour manifestos, but other party manifestos, to be given the once over by the Office of Budget Responsibility to check that their pledges are funded, which isn't defensive, but is kind of strange. Well, they've been hoping that they can get the OBR involved, because up to this point, when they've been trying to put the numbers together and when they've been trying to portray themselves as fiscally responsible, they haven't been able to say that it's been checked, that it's been proofed by the OBR. So Rob Choate and the Office of Budget Responsibility hold an incredible amount of power because they are the people who produce the forward forecasts. They are the people who've been given the task of ensuring that both the finances and the projections are correct. And so Labour wants this and they have asked and been refused to allow the manifestos to go to the OBR. The OBR has been kept at arm's length. The other point I would make about it being right up front, page one before the forward, all of the reporting is that this only happened a couple of days before the manifesto actually came out. And as Chris said, they've spent years debating this thing. And as often happens when you spend years debating something, you actually make your decision at the last moment. And uh, I think two things happened. They made their decision at the last moment because of that ongoing process of debate. But also they saw an opening because they saw the Tories starting to make pledges which they felt were unfunded. And so there was a crack in that edifice of we have everything under control and we know where all the numbers are, they could start to point to the Tories and say, actually, they're making promises now which don't have any money behind them. So do we think that this is convincing? I mean, this piece of political cross-dressing at the last moment, Labour now positioning itself as the party of fiscal responsibility, 
Is it a little too late? It is a little too late in the sense that Labour hasn't managed to change the way the discussion of the economy goes in the media and in the political class over the course of the parliament. So they're adjusting to very awkward circumstances. And that's what gives it its defensive feel. And that's what gives it its defensive feel. The longer term consequence, though, is going to be the constraint on a Miliband government if he becomes prime minister. Miliband talks a grand game about making the country more equal. Uh, He compares himself to Margaret Thatcher as a conviction politician. When you impose these kinds of budgetary straitjackets on what you want to do, your room for manoeuvre is greatly limited. So Miliband is clipping the wings of uh, the social democratic government he would like to lead. That's something he'll have to reckon with in the future. He'll be a diminished prime minister if he becomes Prime Minister. And Finbar, did you get a sense in this document of the underlying conviction, the philosophy behind what Labour is offering to the electorate? My sense of it was that the message that they were conveying, which has been the message for a while now, is that they don't have a different understanding of how to organise the economy or to organise British society. They're not pledging greater competence. That was part of the new Labour pitch, and in a way that worked for a while, but maybe it ran out of steam under Gordon Brown. They're just offering what the Tories do, but they're nicer people. It's Tories without the malice. And to me, that's not a particularly persuasive political argument. A, because I think it's obviously a caricature of conservatism, that it's simply malicious. But also it puts a lot of weight on people believing that these are decent, honest, well-intentioned people. And they're politicians, so they're never going to be that all the time. (laughs) They're never going to be that all the time. And as you say, it is a weak story. Tory light, essentially, is the quickest way to say it. Or Tory nice. A Tory nice. I think that that comes out most clearly for me in that they've given away the ground on the austerity discussion. But they've also then left themselves hostages to fortune. And repeatedly, once the manifesto was launched and as they were talking to people, they didn't want to say the words, the national debt will rise. And they tied themselves in knots, desperately trying to avoid phrases, rather than we've already accepted the austerity narrative, then let's go all of the way and be clear about these phrases. Because all that happened in most of the interviews after the manifesto was they were continually beaten up about when they would balance the books and what was happening with the national debt. And rather than being clear, they kept trying to hide behind phrases which obfuscated what was going on. And just finally, to pick up on a very specific phrase in the document that struck me, one traditional Labour policy that's in there is that they are planning to raise the top rate of tax again back up to 50% for the very highest earners. And in the document, they give a justification for that, which is that the very wealthy should pay a little bit more, it says, in order to help the rest of us. And I was really struck by that phrase a little bit more. After all, if this is going to make any difference, it needs to be a lot more. And if it's just a little bit more, it looks token. It actually looks like it's just gesture politics. And I was really surprised that that got through this years of filtering process. It looks like a gesture to me. I think that's right. And I think that gets at one of the tensions in the Labour manifesto. They use the language of work all the time. The word work appears well over 100 times in this document. And that's shrewd politics because Labour has quite large leads among voters with jobs. Part of what's 
attractive to, let's say, old-fashioned social democrats about that language of work is it takes us back to to 100 years, to the attack on rentiers, to the attack on unearned wealth, unearned privilege, inherited wealth. There's a really powerful attack that Labour can make on Tory plutocrats, the world of inherited wealth, the world of landlords. And these people are a social problem again. But Labour refuses to go there. It pulls its punches. It just gestures in the direction of the old attack on unearned wealth. And then it doesn't go there. And that, I think, is one of the deep tensions in the document that makes it somewhat unsatisfactory whichever way you read it. The word work does indeed feature everywhere in the Labour manifesto, but as part of this political cross-dressing finbar, it also features a lot in the Conservative manifesto that we're going to come on to later. Yeah, and you can see the cross-dressing happening fully, that we have gone from the Conservatives of the party of the nasty to Conservatives now portraying themselves as the party of the worker. Thanks to Finbar and Chris. We'll come back to the Conservative manifesto a little later. Now to my conversation with Barbara Sahakian, who is a professor of clinical neuropsychology and has worked with the UK government and the World Economic Forum on questions of mental health and well-being. This is the first election campaign in which mental health has become a live political issue, and it will be a key feature of the Liberal Democrat manifesto. I began by asking Barbara why mental health matters. We need to think about mental health as every bit as important as physical health. If you don't have good mental health, you're unable to achieve your potential, you're unable to flourish in society. And in addition to the impact on the individual and their own family, there's great financial impact on the government. So I was really pleased to see that um, the Liberal Democrats are taking this up with great enthusiasm and they want to really push to make sure everybody has good mental health and a sense of well-being. And we know how common problems of addiction are, whether it be drugs or alcohol. We also know that many young people in society now are suffering from depression. And in fact, it's one of the highest causes of uh, deaths in young men. And of course, the burden can be lifelong if it's not addressed early on. Before the age of 24, about 75% of mental health problems will start. The way you describe it, it sounds like the kind of issue that should be above party politics. It's hard, in a sense, to see how anyone could disagree given the financial costs of not treating mental health early enough, the fact it is so important for people's well-being. And yet, as you say, only one party is really pushing this. Do you have a sense of why? Unfortunately, it's not as attractive as some of the other areas one can push. And we know that people still have a stigma associated with mental health problems. Now, I think this can be changed because it's changing a bit now anyway. People are speaking out about their mental health problems. Alison Pearson's been a good champion. But we need more of these people to come forward and talk about their own experiences so that people aren't worried about coming forward. So it is striking that the other person who's come out on mental health issues is Alistair Campbell, who was Tony Blair's press secretary, is pretty well known by the general public. He's a political figure, but he's not an elected politician. And it's still very hard to imagine a politician making their own mental health something that they would be comfortable talking about. I mean, the stigma presumably still holds for politicians. Any politician would be very wary about becoming themselves through their own personal experience, though, of course, many of them must have mental health problems by definition a champion of mental health because of their own personal experience. Can you see that happening? 
It would be useful. And um, as you know, Churchill talked about the black dog. So he definitely had periods of depression that were quite serious that he had to cope with while he was actually, you know, in a very prominent position. So I think it does help. But to be honest, as you know, we're in a, a period of time where celebrities count for much more than politicians. People are more interested in listening to their views. So it may well be that it needs more celebrities coming out and championing this cause for us. And there is a celebrity who's also a kind politician, Russell Brand, who engages people about politics and also talks a lot about addiction and mental health. I mean, is he the kind of person you think he could make a difference here? He's a bit like Marmite, of course. You People either love him or hate him. But uh, I think the fact that he's done that is, is really wonderful. People immediately empathise with that. And they also see that, you know, around them in their own families, they have relatives and friends who have had these difficulties. So I think it just needs to be talked about more. If that happens, people will come forward much more early in the course of their problems, and therefore they're much more treatable because the whole thing is early detection, early effective treatment, and then you can halt the whole thing happening so it doesn't progress through the life course. As you say, it's an issue that should be about party politics because all politicians should agree that this is a huge drain on national resources and to treat it early and effectively would save money apart from anything else. Something similar is true in education, which is that neuroscience tells us a lot about the importance of early education and the ways in which understanding the brain is a route to the most effective forms of education. You don't hear politicians talking much about that. The key to everything is education, because if you get a good education, uh, we know that that improves your cognitive reserve and that that will affect your resilience and well-being throughout your life. If you find out that you suffer from a disorder later on in your life, say Alzheimer's disease or depression or schizophrenia, the cognitive reserve that you have built up will protect you against the worst effects of that disorder. But also important for resilience, just overcoming problems. Now, the other thing about education, of course, is that um, it, in the brain, it actually promotes neurogenesis, new brain cells. In young brains, they're more open to plasticity. And so they're more likely to benefit from the effects of education. In the adult human brain, most of the neurogenesis seems to go on in the hippocampus campus, one area of the brain, which is an incredibly important area because that's one of the first brain areas to be affected by the neuropathological changes that we see, the brain damage in Alzheimer's disease. So it's very good to keep that functioning well for longer. Years ago, I wrote a paper with Martin Oral called Use It or Lose It. And the point is that we have to use our brains and stay in lifelong education, really, to keep our brains functioning better for longer. Education broadens your horizon it improves your kind of mindfulness in terms of thinking about things. But it's also been shown that people with higher uh, cognitive functioning also have better well-being. I think almost all politicians agree that education is important. You almost never hear anyone, not even Nigel Farage, come out and say that he doesn't think that education is a good thing. But they rarely describe it in the terms that you've just used. They would happily, I think, make the connection between education and GDP. But education and mindfulness, education and well-being, and also, as you described it, lifelong education, that's something that we don't hear very much about. The focus is very much on early years. 
Do you, can you imagine a political system, a democratic political system, in which politicians spoke the language you were just using, say, the language of mindfulness? Because I think the population are increasingly familiar with the language of mindfulness. You never hear it from politicians. Yeah, uh, it's, a, it's a bit of a pity, that, isn't it? Because we're so focused on work and skills and this and that. But basically, this has to come with a sense of well-being as well. And so what you want to do is encourage people to reach their potential. And that's why it is surprising that politicians don't think more in this vein. Really, if you help all the individuals reach their potential, you'll produce a flourishing society, which will also be more productive and therefore financially benefit as well. And in a global environment, we have to think this way, because we want to make sure that the UK does very well compared to other economies. So brain science, in a way, can tell us two things about politics. It can tell us the things that politicians ought to be talking about, because it just simply makes sense that politicians should understand that the things that they think are important, like economic growth and development, are connected to mental well-being. But it can also tell us a little bit about how politicians communicate to us and the sorts of messages that we pick up from them. And I think all politicians are very conscious of the fact that it's very hard to get a hearing. So do you, as a neuroscientist, have a sense of just how difficult it is for ordinary voters to pick up on new signals, new ways of talking from politicians? Are our brains, in a way, resistant to hearing these new kinds of messages? A lot of the things that people are hearing are the same things they've heard several years ago. And we know that uh, for effective learning, for instance, when people have studied it, we have in fact, here at the University of Cambridge, some of the world-leading experts on looking at learning. And we know for a fact that um, you have to be surprised in order to learn the information the best, um, because this triggers off uh, the dopamine in the brain. So you, you need a prediction error. You need to be surprised by what you hear. And, um, and unfortunately, the voters are probably not getting enough surprises about something new, exciting, and positive. Because the other thing is that positivity is very good. It affects the reward system. So our politicians, I think, are fixated on one basic lesson of recent political history, which is they think negative advertising works. They believe that actually the way to get through to people, the way to be heard, is to have a very crisp, very clear negative message. And actually, in the past week, I think the Conservative Party have been showing that they're still following that playbook. So do you think that's wrong? Yeah, well, there's some very interesting neuroscience experiments that have been done where they've put people in scanners and they've uh, actually given them tasks to do, like decision-making tasks or empathy tasks. And the interesting thing is they've They've mostly been students that they've used, so it's a little bit artificial. But nonetheless, they've picked students of different persuasions, people who have more conservative views, people have more liberal views. But what they found was that um, if you're more conservative, you tend to look at risk and uncertainty as a threat, and therefore your right amygdala lights up. And that's this amygdala in the brain is something that's a rather primitive area that um, responds to threats. And then if you're uh, more empathetic, you, you tend to have areas such as the insula right up, uh, light up so that you get more activation in, in the insula area. And that goes more with a sort of broadened view of social 
views about uh, how society should should be dealt with rather than hierarchical views. And these have been replicated, actually, intriguingly. So it isn't just one group that's produced this. They basically all come up with a similar uh, finding. So there's something about the brain that when we have to deal with risk and uncertainty, whether we immediately maybe think about the threat aspect of that, which is perhaps more negative, or whether we think about more positive sides. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Speaking of someone who doesn't know this science at all, it's fascinating what you say, because the question that then immediately comes up in my mind is how fixed are these dispositions? So if it's true that people of a more conservative disposition are going to respond to notions of threat and people of a more progressive disposition are going to respond to more empathetic messages. But how can you reach across that divide if you want to get the people who are worried about risk and threat to empathise? Is there any way to communicate to them? I would say that most people want a more well-rounded portfolio of what the different parties have to offer. So obviously people are concerned about terrorism, they're concerned about threats in the world, but we're also concerned about poverty within the UK, what we can do to help young people get homes and help young people get skilled up and reduce the stress in the environment that people are in. So there's many positive things that we can do that have to do with promoting um, good mental capital and well-being and making a flourishing society, as well as defending ourselves against threats and and stresses. And it's very interesting because another uh, area of neuroscience has shown that, um, you know, we have this kind of two types of learning. One is called goal-directed learning, where you're trying to achieve your goals. So, you know, in this case, you want to be prime minister. (laughs) I don't, but But I know people who do. (laughs) So that's the goal. And in other cases... We resort to more habitual learning. And I often sort of try to discuss it as a type of thing where when you're first learning to drive, your whole brain is really active, particularly your frontal lobes, the front part of your brain, because you're trying not to run anybody over, not to bang into anything. And you're you're having to activate all the different areas of the brain, particularly the frontal cortex. So you have very good top-down cognitive control of your motor function in your driving. And then as you get more advanced, you have a more habitual way of doing things. And I'm sure many people in Cambridge have had this strange experience where you're driving down the M11, you suddenly get to the bottom of it and you think, oh, I'm at the bottom of the M11 and I haven't been thinking about it at all because if you haven't been interrupted by a traffic accident or you haven't had a lot of traffic to look out for, you're almost on what they call automatic pilot. And what we find is that under stress, we are more likely to go for that habitual system. So this sort of banging out of the usual is more likely to happen under stressful conditions rather than thinking about goals that could be attained and uh, more innovative ways of thinking about how we can solve some of our problems and in the process of that maybe expanding the economy and, and improving people's 
well-being. Is the implication of what you're saying there that politicians in their own careers are very goal-directed, they want to be prime minister and so on, but actually the default position under stress is this kind of habitual learning. It almost should be the other way around. If we could get them to be more goal-directed, not thinking about their own careers, but thinking about the problems that they have to solve. I mean, that sounds to me quite plausible, actually. The goal-directed learning is very much focused on their own personal experiences within politics. And we want, need to try and reorient it towards thinking about the goals of the problem solving that they're in politics to achieve. Absolutely. They need to be creative, innovative, and they need to sort of look out there for new solutions to problems that may, may have been quite familiar. And do you think that there's a role for science and scientists like yourself in spreading this message to politicians? I mean, I know you're involved in talking to the public about neuroscience and about science more broadly. Do you talk to politicians as well? So I did do a couple of projects with the previous chief scientific advisor to the UK um, government, and that was uh, Sir John Beddington. And we did the UK government foresight project on mental capital and well-being, which I think was very um, uh, impactful in terms of, you know, bringing into uh, language the word well-being and thinking about society flourishing and how we could make that happen, thinking about how we could address problems like depression, address problems like Alzheimer's disease and keep our brains functioning better for longer throughout the whole life course. David Cameron uh, tried to tackle Alzheimer's disease by, he noted that only 40% of people in the UK were getting a diagnosis. So he wanted early detection, early diagnosis, because we know that there are early effective treatments for the symptoms of Alzheimer's disease. And the pharmaceutical companies are now working on neuroprotective agents, which are going to actually treat the underlying disease process. And we need to get those into people early so they can have the best quality of life and functional ability for as long as possible. He's put a lot of focus into that, and he's put a, quite a lot of money into trying to develop research approaches to finding these neuroprotective agents in order to halt Alzheimer's disease. There are good things that can be done in the short term. You know, if you focus on a particularly big problem and try to address it, that's a very good ap approach. But we also need to be thinking longer term. And I think we're not doing enough about that with young people in the country. They are the future of the country. They will be leaders in the future. We need to make sure that their education is as best as possible, that they're skilled up, that they're hopeful about the future and that they're positive. In a way, one of the striking things about this election, and you touched on it just a moment ago, is that probably after the election, we're going to have to have a lot of cross-party agreement just to form a government. It's very unlikely that either of the main parties will have a majority. And that means not only will there need to be some kind of coalition building, but there will need to be compromise and some of the things that you talked about, people reaching out with political messages that cut across party divisions. But in the actual campaign, both of the main parties are focusing on the core vote. They've gone more tribal for, I think, some of the reasons you talked about earlier. They know that they want to reach that part of the brain that triggers the likelihood of their supporters coming out and voting for them. So we have in some ways a more tribal politics leading to a result that will have to be less tribal if it's going to work. So there's kind of pessimism and optimism here. Yes. I mean, I'm torn myself as to which way it's going to go, whether the, the tribalism will win out over the need for compromise. But this is a very interesting election for that reason. Yes. And that we see the two sides of politics, the tribal side, the appealing to your in-group, and the fact that it will produce a result where there won't be an in-group in power. 
Yes, I mean, it's fascinating, isn't it? I guess their approach is mainly to, well, I have my own in-group, and I need to make sure that all of that in-group votes for my party. And if they all vote, we'll win. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. So they're going for that strategy rather than thinking about, well, let's see, what what are important to most people in the country? Let's reach out and be more encompassing of of different viewpoints. Maybe that will come later. Well, let's hope so. But uh, yeah, I think at the moment, you're right, they're focusing on their own in-groups. And and just one final question on that theme, because as well as increasing partisanship in politics, we also see, even in the UK, rising nationalism in that one of the parties that may be very important after this election is the Scottish National Party. And they seem to have found a way to really maximise the kind of identity politics that works for them. I mean, presumably neuroscience is also pretty clear that a nationalist appeal is one way of triggering the kinds of emotional responses, the kind of brain responses that does really galvanise people. Well, I think that's right. I I suppose less of that has been actually studied, but uh, it goes very well with the other studies which look at in-groups versus out-groups. And basically, if you see the people around you are more like you, that's the way you see them as part of your in-group. And this is part of the problem, of course, with uh, immigration and migration, that these people are not viewed as much as the in-group. And so they have more work to do to be accepted by the by the in-group. Also, and as we were talking before, under periods of austerity, which is stressful because people are worried about their jobs, some people are under zero hours contracts and they're worried about whether they'll get enough work, all these things actually provide stress. And under situations of stress, as I mentioned before, we revert back to our habitual, more automatic thinking. So, you know, we do have sort of cold and hot cognition is something that I work on myself. And the cold cognition is a sort of rational, more planning, problem solving and a wider horizon. And then there's the hot cognition, which is more emotional and social. And normally these are imbalanced. So they're, they're both beneficial in some ways because um, the social cognition, the hot cognition helps me read you, whether to trust you, what I want to say to you, whether you're paying attention to me or I'm getting boring or what. So that's very helpful. But also we need the rational side of things. So we need to keep our flexibility. But if we get under a lot of stress, we tend to become more restricted and go down the habitual route, the hot hot route. And we probably don't have as much control then of our thinking and we can't uh, change the distortions that we might have as easily. So we need more cold politics. Cold politics is good, but as you know, the way people perceive the candidates, whether it's somebody I could talk to, I could sit down and tell them about my problems, is also very important to people, isn't it? So this is why these debates are so important, how somebody comes across, how they look, whether they look calm and relaxed and they're somebody you feel you have confidence in and you can can understand how you feel about the situation that you're in. Exactly. I, I think I've, I've heard that sometimes it's not so much whether the voters do I like the politician? It's would the politician like me? That's the key question. <laughs> yeah. And often you think, no, they wouldn't like me. <laughs> they would have no time for me at all. Yeah. So it's so both the hot and the cold is very important and they need to be kept in balance. But under stress, under austerity, um, sometimes these uh, unfortunately come out of whack. Thank you to Barbara Sahakian. Now back to the slightly depressing business of the party manifestos. Yesterday it was the Conservatives' turn, also trying to confound expectations by offering something a bit sunnier and more uplifting than what we've been getting from them so far in this campaign. Finbar, do you think they succeeded? 
I think they succeeded in changing the tone of their delivery, but I don't think they succeeded in suddenly portraying themselves as a nice party with nice things to give away. This was a manifesto of detail and retail. They were giving a number of retail policies across the board, a huge number of pieces of detail. And as you're reading it, you just felt that you were going to swim in this sea of pledges that they'd made with no detail behind it on the costings, even though that they continually claim everything is fully funded. Just to give an example of the level of detail that Finbar's talking about there, the Labour Manifesto has various pledges about devolution, empowering local democracy and so on, but it's all in fairly general terms. The Tories go into real detail and they pitch it to the parts of the country where they are trawling for votes. There's a section of the manifesto that says we will back new jobs in the southwest, where, of course, they're competing with the Liberal Democrats, and it lists the roads that they are going to invest in, the A358, the A30, the A303. I imagine they run through some important constituencies. In the Midlands, where they're taking on Labour, the M1 and the M6 will get investment. In the east of England, where they're confronting UKIP, again, we get into real detail, the A11 and the A47 will be upgraded. It's a very different kind of document, Chris, from the Labour document. I think that's right. It's not that these concerns are entirely absent from the Labour document. You get, for example, a remark about how they'll make sure that Wales gets a decent amount of funding and won't be won't be disadvantaged with respect to Scotland. But you're absolutely right. The level of detail in the Conservative manifesto is it's in a diff, it's a different order of magnitude. Those particular roads are then accompanied with these. Uh, they call them regional powerhouses. I think the Northern Powerhouse. Uh, and they mention the Midlands or areas where the Conservative Party has not been especially electorally competitive over the last 20 years and where it needs to win substantial numbers of marginal seats if it's ever to form a majority government again. I don't think it's all like that. The media's attention has been most grabbed by the pledge to extend the right to buy to people who are renting properties from housing associations. There's a question mark about whether that policy would be legal. But that strikes me, in a sense, setting aside that kind of question, this strikes me as the the sort of big picture. This isn't focused on particular localities. This is a national project. It's also one that will never be implemented. The Conservatives are not going to win an overall majority at this election. No coalition partner that they would discuss with would agree to have that policy uh, as part of a joint programme. So it straightforwardly looks like a bribe they can offer to the million or so voters who might benefit from it and benefit from it very substantially. But they And it's appalling public policy, but they'd never have to deliver on it. And housing, which is a big issue in this campaign, particularly in the south of England, but more widely, it's a much bigger feature of the Conservative manifesto than the Labour manifesto. Labour has a page about housing and a project to build 200,000 new homes and so on. But it's not really part of what you'd call the Labour philosophy. It's right at the heart of the Conservative philosophy. Absolutely. But this, again, is retreading Margaret Thatcher's moves in the 80s. It is the greatest hits coming back 30, 40 years after they were originally put out. Yes, it's right at the heart of the philosophy. And it is the part of the manifesto, as Chris says, that gives you the higher vision. So there are two parts to the manifesto, a core conservative philosophy, 
but one that aligns quite nicely with a tempting offer so that please come and vote for us, and then all of this retail detail underneath. The Labour manifesto that we spoke about earlier, by contrast, high vision, high vision, high vision. And Chris said that the thing about the Tory pledge on right to buy is it'll never be implemented, which does raise the question what these manifestos are for. What kind of a pledge are they post an election? It's sometimes said that because we've read them. I'm not sure I would have read them if we weren't doing this podcast. I'd have looked at them, but I'm not sure I'd have read them all the way through. Very, very few voters will read them. Civil servants read them. And it is said that civil servants read them partly because they want to know what they might have to do after an election. Is that who these manifestos are for, apart from for the media? They're actually there to set down a marker for a future government to the civil service. This is what we pledge to do. Help us do it. That's certainly been one of the functions of manifestos in the past, as well as the broader thought that in elections where one party can be expected to have an overall majority, the manifesto can be translated much more straightforwardly into public policy. There's a wonderful moment in Tony Blair's memoir where he describes becoming prime minister and going into number 10 Downing Street for the first time and a senior civil servant tells him that they've been reading the manifesto with care and they're ready to implement it. And Blair's horrified by this because he's not terribly keen on the 1997 Labour manifesto. His juices only really begin to flow when Andrew Adonis comes in and starts writing policy for him and he can start privatising things in the 2001 manifesto. So there are some comic moments there with that story about the relationship between manifestos and civil servants. But that's absolutely right. As we move into a world where coalitions can be expected the manifesto will become a different kind of document. What will matter much more are the bullet points that the negotiating teams take into post-election negotiations. And we have no idea at the moment what those will be. And we may, if it turns out to be a surprisingly interesting document, come back to the Lib Dem manifesto next week. But that's been part of what they've been saying, because of course, they famously broke some of their pledges, which is that the pledges they made in the manifesto were not binding because they were subsequently bound by the coalition agreement, which is a very different thing. So if this is the age of coalition politics, Finbar, do we need different kinds of manifestos? We probably do need different kinds of manifestos. I'd argue actually we need manifestos that are probably slightly briefer and released earlier. Because one of the issues here is that we've had the long and the short campaign as described by the political class and the media. The manifestos have come out really late. And the amount of time that people have to actually scrutinize and really get into them is very, very short. In my view, the manifesto launches, especially for Labour, rather than being pointed at the civil servants, rather than being pointed at the negotiations that may occur post the election itself, are actually pointed at the media and trying to change the way in which the media discuss each of the parties. Because as we said, we've seen some cross-dressing here. And so Labour have basically tried to say, we can take care of the economy. Please write us as a party who can take care of the economy. And the Conservatives said, we're a party who are actually quite nice and we're going to give you lots of things. This moment is, for me, an inflection point that will get filtered through the reporting, filtered through the media. I'd like to make one more point, though, just on the Conservative raft of detail. In the middle of all that raft of detail, there are things that potentially will matter. They may or may not get implemented, as Chris has said, depending on coalition. But one of the things that's in here from the Conservatives is a fundamental change in the nature of the country's democracy, which is reducing the number of MPs from 650 to 600. That will mean redistricting. 
And that is a very interesting move to try and change the balance of power because of the way in which the constituencies currently work against the Conservatives. And that's slipped in and nobody is talking about it. But that absolutely will be the heart of any coalition discussions because, of course, it serves the interests of one party much more than another. Very briefly, there was another manifesto published this week. I'm not trying to downgrade it, but it's probably less significant. And that's the Green Manifesto. It's a very different kind of document. As Chris said, the Labour one is slightly agonised. You feel this was years of putting things on the table, taking them away again. What can we fit in? What do we have to take out? The green one, which is very long, feels like they didn't take anything out. They just got round a table and everyone listed all the things that they wanted, ranging from quite micro local politics right the way through to solving the Israel-Palestinian problem. The Green Manifesto, does that matter at all? Or is it just a kind of wish list to signal to people who they are? I mean, when you look at the Greens... On on optimistic forecast, they'll win two seats. They're probably safe in Brighton Pavilion with the re-election of Caroline Lucas. They're obviously mounting a very strong campaign in Bristol West. But you'd have to be very starry-eyed to think that they have a serious chance anywhere else. And in Brighton Pavilion and in Bristol West, voters aren't voting for them because of this long list of charismatic left-wing commitments in the manifesto. They're voting to re-elect a local MP who's been a successful local MP. And the Israel-Palestinian question is probably a secondary issue. And there's a very distinctive, Bristol West is a very unusual constituency in terms of who's there. And again, it's not that the median voter in Bristol West is far to the left of the of the median voter anywhere else. So I don't think the Green Manifesto matters a great deal. Although one of the interesting things about the Green Party is that they've attracted thousands and thousands of new members members over the last six months or so. And a lot will turn on whether those members, as with happens with some other party membership surges, is easy come, easy go, and we see membership declining to a more usual level over the next year or so, or whether in fact they do end up with a lot more activists, a lot more people committed to the boring work of building the party over the next five years or so. And if this manifesto is, you know, perhaps with slightly less emphasis on the environment, slightly more emphasis on old-fashioned left-wing economics. If the manifesto is pushing in the direction of the new activists, and if those activists are committed and serious about building the party, then the manifesto is an important weather vane uh, to show which way the wind is blowing in the Green Party. Very last point. We've touched on a few international elections while we've been talking about the British election and election. This podcast is going to be resuming again in January because we're going to run a whole series about the American presidential election, which is, of course, a very important election. And this week, Hillary Clinton, finally, a bit like the launch of the manifestos. We've been waiting for it for a long time. We knew it was coming. And finally, Hillary Clinton has announced that she will be running for president. Do either of you feel a surge of excitement or interest about American politics with this news, or does it just strike you as something that was baked in already? It was baked in, but she faces a really difficult challenge. She faces the problem of the dynastic element of American politics right now between the Bushes and the Clintons. And she faces a struggle to really punch through and tell a story that she's actually wanting to earn votes rather than feel that she now just is going to be the candidate. There's no other real challenger. And she already has the nomination, if not a strong run of the White House already tied up. So it's a very interesting point. 
it's a very interesting moment that this story begins. But there's such a long time now to go. It's hard to get excited at this early stage. And we feel we've been talking about this campaign for a while. And by British standards, it's been a long campaign. It is nothing. I mean, she declared quite late, actually, compared to some other candidates, including Republican candidates. But we are a long way off the first primary, which will happen at the very end of this year. Chris, there is such a long time to go. Does it even make sense to think of Hillary Clinton as a clear favourite to be the next president of the United States? We should have the shortest betting odds because she's overwhelmingly likely to get the Democratic nomination and the Democrats may very well win the presidency. We don't really have a sense of who the Republican candidates are going to be. Uh, The people who announce their interest a long time in advance are often the people who don't really stand a serious chance of clinching the nomination. They're doing other things. Senator Rand Paul would be uh, an example of that. American presidential races are uh, crazily long. We've had a long election campaign here. I hope it doesn't get any longer. That's it for this week. Thank you to Finbar and Chris. Once we're finally done with this election, we'll be picking up more on Hillary and much else besides in season two. Thanks also to our guest Barbara Sahakian and to our production team of Hannah Critchlow, Francis Durnley and Lizzie Presser. Join us again next week when I'll be talking to the leading technology entrepreneur Sherry Kutu about whether government can adapt to keep pace with technological change and what Britain can do to ensure we remain competitive in this fast-moving world. Scale up or get left behind. Do join us next time. My name is David Runciman and this has been the Cambridge University podcast, Election. If you'd like to join in, our Twitter hashtag is hashtag election podcast. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.